Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You ask us in your epistle, of what people, of what family, and of what tribe are you? Know that we are descended from Japheth through his son Togarmah. I have found in the genealogical books of my ancestors that Togarmah had ten sons. These are their names. The eldest was Ujur, the second Tauris, the third Avar, the fourth Uaus, the fifth Bizau, the sixth Tarna, the seventh Kazar, the eighth Janur, the ninth Bulgar, the tenth Sawir. I am descendant of Kazar, the seventh son. Khan Joseph of the Khazars, in a letter to Hasadi ibn Shaprut. Everyone's right and no one is sorry. That's the start and the end of the story. From the sharks and the jets to the call in the morning. Hello and welcome to From Wittenberg to Westphalia, The Wars of the Reformation. My name is Benjamin Jacobs, and this is Episode 9, Walking Tour Episode 4B, Eastern Europe Part 2. In our last episode, we saw how climate drove the lifestyles of the prehistoric people of Eastern Europe, which lasted until roughly the year 900, and how the North-South River corridors allowed Viking traders to begin moving into the area and hybridizing with the local populations. This hybrid society came to be known as the Rus. Today we are going to try and flesh out our picture of the Rus in this period, and bring the story of Eastern Europe up to the year 1300. First, however, I think we need to fill in some of the empty spaces on our map. The last episode was very Rus-centric, and I think it's important to emphasize that there are other people in Eastern Europe, and the Rus themselves aren't necessarily monolithic. So I think the best way to start this episode out is to begin in the north and talk about the peoples around the Baltic, and then move to the south and talk about the Khazars and the Byzantines, and then finish up by coming back to the Rus and bringing the whole area up to 1300. Sound good? Alright, podcast footnote. I love the institution of footnotes in academic papers as a way to present additional stories or information. I'm not really sure who first started doing podcast footnotes. I think it might have been Zach Twomley from When Diplomacy Fails. But either way, I'm stealing it, with little or no shame, because it's extremely useful. I will use it a few times in this episode. Let me know if you love it or hate it at the Facebook page, or on the website, Wittenberg to Westphalia podcast.weebly.com, or by emailing me at wittenbergtowestphalia at gmail.com. End podcast footnote. 
We've mentioned the Baltic numerous times in this podcast, and I'm not sure if I've defined it, so let's set that to rights real quick right here. The Baltic is a sea bounded in the west by Jutland, in the north by Scandinavia, in the south by the modern states of Germany and Poland, and in the east by Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania, with Estonia in the north and Lithuania in the south. The sea connects with the North Sea via a twisty route that goes north of Jutland, and by several canals that in modern times cross Jutland, but of course these didn't exist in 1300. Today we are interested in the southern and eastern shores. These shores are actually pretty straightforward. Imagine a backwards capital L, where each leg of the L is the same size, and that's basically the idea. The sea is named for the Balts, a very loose group of tribes that once stretched from Jutland to Moscow, but in the migrations following the disintegration of the Roman Empire, the Balts seem to have been jostled around until they were all living either on the southern or eastern shores of the sea that came to take their name. During this entire time, they were in regular contact with Germans, Celts, and Proto-Nordic peoples. When the Slavs arrived, they put huge cultural pressure on the Balts, pressing against them all along the outer edges of the southern and eastern regions, in some cases completely hybridizing them until one was not distinguishable from the other. At around the same time, the Vikings began raiding and trading all along the shores of the Baltic. How much these influences came to impact the culture of the Balts is really hard to say. The people on the eastern and southern shores paid tribute to the Danish monarchs during the Viking Age, but this was a pretty short-lived phenomenon, and didn't seem to have a really lasting cultural impact for the most part. That said, the Estonians on the northeastern shore were so influenced by contact with Nordic cultures that many Estonians began to go a Viking, fighting battles with Swedish Vikings across the Baltic Sea in their own longboats, and raiding far up the rivers of the interior. Some commentators consider the Estonians to be just another tribe of Finn, and not really a Baltic group at all. On the southern shore, things are, if anything, more complex. The southern shore of the Baltic forms the northern boundary of a corridor between the Baltic and the Carpathian Mountains that's been a east-west route between sort of mainland Central Europe and Eastern Europe since time immemorial. Since it's hard to get really good boundaries for the end of Eastern Europe, when I set about defining my regional boundaries for Eastern Europe, I ended it at the Vistula River, effectively cutting this corridor in half. Unfortunately, the people who lived there didn't stop at the Vistula River, they just kept on going. So I'm going to be doing the deep history of this region here, and it'll be useful background later when we get to Central Europe. Just know that we're kind of straddling the borders a little bit. So the things you really need to take away from this are the Vistula is in the middle, the southern shore of the Baltic is on the north, and the Carpathian Mountains are on the south. People who inhabited this corridor existed on a cultural continuum between Slavic and Baltic, depending on how close they were to the coastline. The furthest south were the Czechs, the Moravians, and the Slovaks, who weren't very Baltic at all. Furthest north were the Valeti Union, the Pomeranians, and the Prussians, who were all rather Baltic, although the Valeti and the Pomeranians were considered more Slavic than Baltic. By contrast, the Prussians were a completely Baltic tribe. Now, this is actually interesting if you know your European history, because the Prussians end up being the ones that reunify Germany in the modern period into the modern state of Germany. You'll see why, actually, within this episode. Uh, but for now, Baltic tribe. So much for the south and north. In the middle, there were the Sorbs, the Schleshans, the Polans, and the Masovians. 
So between the south and the north and the middle of the southern shore of the Baltic in this, this corridor that I've talked about, I've thrown like a dozen names at you. If that seems like a lot, it is, but I think most of you can already pick out the ones that are going to be really important. The important thing to understand is that there were a whole smattering of different tribes with different identities. Some of them made it, and some of them did not. Nonetheless, the people that came to inhabit this area would have an outsized impact on European history, particularly when, between the years 900 and 1000, the Polon tribe began to coalesce around a strong centralized dynasty, the Piast dynasty. This dynasty began a policy of aggressively expanding and consolidating their power via the construction of fortified settlements. In this way, the Piast dynasty and their Polon tribe managed to conquer the entire central portion of this region, uh, between the Carpathians in an area not quite up to the Baltic Sea, as the Pomeranians, the Wileti Union, and the Prussians continued to resist them. In the south, they didn't quite conquer the Czechs, the Moravians, and the Slovaks, as the Carpathian Mountains presented something of a barrier, at least initially. In this way, they gradually conquered a heartland straddling the Vistula River and between the Oder and the Lava Rivers. This brought the Piast dynasty up against the Holy Roman Empire. At this time, the Holy Roman Empire consisted of the eastern half of Charlemagne's original empire, uh, what we would consider today Germany and the northern part of Italy. However, as we remember, the original Holy Roman Empire hadn't included the entirety of what we would call Germany today. The first few monarchs after the reconsolidation of the Holy Roman Empire were expansionistic militaristic leaders, and were expanding to the east just as the Polish were expanding in every direction. Their first few confrontations were predictably hostile, as both fought several campaigns against each other, ultimately to no avail. This would seem like the setup for a long, icy relationship, particularly given that the Poles were still pagan at this point. However, things changed really quickly, and the Holy Roman Empire and the Polish Kingdom ended up considering themselves equals in the same way that, say, England and France considered themselves equals. That doesn't mean you don't try and kill each other and take their stuff, but you know, your friends. Needless to say, it was a close and heartwarming relationship. This change really started under the rule of Meshko I of the P.S. dynasty and Otto II of the Holy Roman Empire. It's under Meshko's rule that contacts not involving stabbing began to take place between the two sides. Although Meshko began his reign like pretty much everyone else with attempts to conquer the Holy Roman Empire, Mishko gradually began attempting to use diplomacy to achieve his ends, particularly in the 960s. One part of this policy was the marriage of Mesko I to the daughter of the Duke of Bohemia, a close ally of the Holy Roman Empire, and a holder of a lot of territory that Mesko wanted to conquer. This marriage, of course, brought land gains, but it also brought a Christian princess into the Mesko court. And a few years later, in 966, Mesko I converted to Christianity. This opened up a whole new world, not just for Mesko, who now had a different diplomatic situation, which we will talk about in a second, but also for us, as it meant that the uh, illiterate pagans of this region were now in the historical record. Welcome, guys. Though we will see very shortly that converting to Christianity didn't always bring immediate friendly diplomatic relations, in this case, the Holy Roman Empire happened to be coming up against a series of internal political issues. I'm going to go into more detail on the history of the Holy Roman Empire after Charlemagne 
in the episodes on Central Europe. For now, suffice it to say that Meshko I and the Piast dynasty, and the Holy Roman Empire, under first Otto II and then Henry, found that for various reasons, continued hostilities were no longer possible due to the political issues they had internally and enemies in other quarters. The wars would intermittently continue for various reasons, there was also a fair amount of cooperation, as the Holy Roman Empire, for example, helped the Piast dynasty conquer Pomerania for the first time. It didn't stick. The Pomeranians rebelled if you looked at them cross-eyed. Now, this brings us up about to the year 1000, so let's pause our look at the Baltic and look to the south. I mentioned last time in my look at the geography of Eastern Europe that the Caucasian Isthmus separates the Caspian Sea and the Black Sea and connects Eastern Europe to the Middle East. It's a fascinating area with much history of its own, most of which I really can't go into in this podcast. In the year 650 or so, a small political grouping known as the Khazars broke off from the collapsing Turkic Khanate and set up a power base on the northern side of the Isthmus initially finding its borders on the Volga and Don rivers that we discussed last time. This area was extremely important in the trade routes of the early Middle Ages, being essentially a clearinghouse for slaves taken from Western Europe and containing one of the key routings of the overland trade route to the east that I mentioned last time in relation to tea. As trade began moving down the rivers of the steppes, it only added to the wealth and trade importance of the Khazars, given that they could effectively control the Volga River. And so the Khazars had wealth to consolidate and expand their fledgling steppe empire. By the year 900, it had grown to the Dnieper River to the west, and to the tree line in the north, including getting tribute from the volga bulgar Khanate that we mentioned last time. In the east, it never really found a solid border, but did extend as far as the Aral Sea of blessed memory, and the trading cities at the mouth of the Oxus River. We should note here, the empire of the Khazars neither ethnically cleansed its conquests nor colonized them, as more civilized empires might be expected to. Those who resisted undoubtedly suffered the consequences, but those who submitted would be incorporated into the feudal power structure of the empire, ruling as territorial nobility in their former lands. This is actually a common practice for steppe nomad empires, and it's seen pretty regularly throughout history. The Khazars, like most steppe nomads, were warriors with little time for administration. As a result, the Volga Bulgars, for example, continued to rule their territory. And the Rus nobility of Kiev, as we mentioned at the end of the last episode, continued to administer the territories that they had founded. To the south, the Khazars eventually pushed across the Caucasus Mountains, bringing them into contact and conflict with the Arab empires of the Middle East. A number of very bloody wars resulted in the areas that we would now call Iran, Georgia, Armenia, and Azerbaijan. At one point, the caliphs made peace with the badly beaten Khazars, only on the condition of their converting to Islam. This conversion was enthusiastically abandoned when the tide turned a few years later, and the caliphs were badly beaten. It may have been around this time that the Khazars first converted to Judaism, about which more in a few minutes. Podcast footnote. I should probably say something about my own biases at this point. I am Jewish, as some of you likely know. As a result, I was subjected to a Hebrew school education that consisted largely of gloomy, blame-heavy history books and probably a dozen screenings of Anne Frank. That's a lot of time to watch a movie in which nothing happens. Anyway, given that for most of European history, Jews have been portrayed either as amusingly nebbish or convenient massacre victims, I was personally thrilled beyond the point of politeness to find out that there were a bunch of Conan the Barbarian-style horse badasses who rode around with yarmulkes under their furry animal pelt hats. 
In the modern context, it's unfortunately a bit morally questionable to take unmitigated glee in Jewish martial prowess, and at the end of the day, the historic picture of the Khazars is far more complicated than I would like to believe. But for me, they will always be a combination of the Riders of Rohan and Tevye the Milkman. I promise to attempt to control my giggling when the mic is on. End podcast footnote. It may also have been around this time that the eastern Volga trade route declined in importance and the western Dnieper heavy trade route increased in importance. It's tempting to tie this event to the friction between the Khazars, who were an important trade partner in the east, and the Caliphs, who were the ultimate goal of the trade in the east. We really don't know enough about the timing of the decline in importance in the eastern trade route to say for sure whether this is true. By contrast with the Islamic powers, the Byzantine Romans had a much more hands-off approach to the Khazars. Byzantium had territories and trade interests in the north shore of the Black Sea, but never had the resources to more forcefully promote its interests in that direction, preferring to just fortify trade centers at the mouths of rivers. Their policy in general was to maintain friendly trade relations while encouraging the different tribes to fight amongst themselves in order to avoid any one tribe becoming a real threat. The result was probably far more successful than their policies of direct intervention, this border being largely stable for most of the existence of the empire. The most interesting thing about the Khazars, and the reason they are probably most famous these days, is that they may have been Jewish. The story goes like this. The Khan was under pressure to convert to a monotheistic religion because of the international context of being sandwiched between the Islamic world and the Orthodox Christian Byzantine Roman Empire, and also because he married a Jewish Babatish. Unsure which religion to pick, the Khan went out and slept in a cave where he was visited by an angel. The Khan then went and confined a debate, essentially, among four sages, the philosophers, the Christians, the Muslims, and the Jews. Long story short, he liked the Jews the best. The historicity of this actual debate is an open question. It uses a lot of literary tropes from Eastern and Western traditions, uh, as well as Turkic traditions, particularly the bit about the cave. Modern scholars have suggested a variety of alternative scenarios that would have convinced the Khazar Khan to convert to Judaism of all religions. One is that Judaism would have allowed trade contacts with both East and West, whereas picking Christianity or Islam would have cut off half the trade contacts that were so important to the Khazar economy and royal funding. Another plausible scenario is that in the wake of the defeat of the Caliphs, the Khazars, as was mentioned previously, uh, wanted to show their dominance by throwing off the Islamic religion. At the same time, there were a number of uh, Jewish, Christian, and Islamic people living in Khazar territory due to these wide trade contacts. And going back to the traditional Turkic religion might have led to dissension within the territory of the Khazar state, as well as a sort of international pariah status. At the same time, going over to entirely Christian or entirely Islamic state-sponsored religion would seem to carry with it a certain surrender of sovereignty, given that this Religious stuff was being used as an international tool in international treaties. So Judaism, again, represented an important middle ground within this international and religious context that would have allowed the Khazar Khans to maintain their independence and sovereignty while still, hopefully, attaining equal status within this international context. Of course, it is also plausible that the Khan just had a genuine religious conversion experience, but... We live in a cynical age that refuses to admit of such possibilities. Now, various scholars debate these various scenarios, 
but the one thing that most modern scholars do agree on is that the Khazars were actually Jewish. This does represent a turnaround, as stories of a Jewish kingdom in this region of the world were for many years discounted as completely ridiculous. In the last century or so, however, this documentary evidence has been reevaluated, and more modern scholars found there's just too much agreement on this point from Islamic, Christian, and Jewish sources for this not to be true without some important contradictory piece of evidence. On the other hand, there's a distinct lack of archaeological confirmation of these written records. We've not found any ground synagogues of the Khazars. People who oppose the Jewish theory look to this as evidence. But there's a good number of conceivable reasons why there would be a lack of archaeological evidence of Judaism within the Khazar territory, despite the documentary evidence of there being one. Most positively, their elites were horse nomads, who weren't really prone to settling down and building cities in permanent materials. Though they did have a number of settlements within their territory, the actual capital seems to have moved around every couple of years. We even have documentary evidence that the Khan decreed that no one except him could build in mud brick. Everyone else had to build in wood or straw or whatever. As a result, their religious life may have been practiced exclusively in the saddle. Compounding this issue is the federal nature of the standard steppe Khanate empire that we discussed previously in this episode whereby conquered ethnic peoples would continue to reign within their territory so long as they paid tribute to the centralized Khan. Within this context, it's almost inconceivable that the Volga Bulgars, for example, ever converted to Judaism or were even looked down on for not. The Khazars just never had that kind of power. So even within the context of the pro-Jewish Khazar theories, we can't realistically expect any more than a small grouping of Jewish clans at the very apex of the Khazar political structure. If the new religion never penetrated beyond the few clans that made up the core elite of the Khazar state, there may never have been any congregation settled enough to leave behind religious structures. On the other hand, we do also need to keep in mind the subsequent history of this region. Neither the Muslim Tartars nor the Orthodox Russians would have had an interest in preserving or celebrating this Jewish chapter in their land's history. The Russians indeed would go out of their way to eliminate Jewish populations in their territory under the Tsars, though it was occasionally politically convenient to claim friendship with the Jews during the communist period, the expediency of these views was sometimes short-lived and was more often than not a thin veneer over intense bigotry. Much of the academic work that has been done on the Khazars has been made possible only in the post-communist era, with a rather limited number of archaeological digs being conducted. Though what we have learned is amazing and important, and suggestive, there is much more to know, and unfortunately, the current political climate may well mean that we have to wait several more decades for a similar period of openness to return to the region. It is somewhat ironically appropriate, then, that the story of the ultimate fate of the Khazars is going to require us to return to Kiev, and the story of the Rus. The exact circumstances are lost to history, but by the year 1000, a political entity known as the Kievan Rus emerged into the historical record. The legend I described in the last episode, wherein Rurik founds both Novgorod and Kiev, would claim Rurik as the founder of the Kievan Rus, and would claim that this happened between 900 and 1000. The historical and archaeological record contradicts this story, inasmuch as there was a specific person named Rurik ruling during this specific time. We have discussed that a Rus nobility had been administering the Kiev region for the Khazars around the year 900, as attested by documentary evidence. 
it's possible that they rose in revolt. This would account for Kiev's importance as the center of the Rus' political entity that followed. The archaeological evidence doesn't directly contradict this interpretation. This evidence shows that the trading town of Kiev and its surrounding territories were destroyed around this time and rebuilt in a new style. It's possible that some part of the Rus of this area was forced to fight a civil war against the Rus who were compliant with Khazar rule. They would afterwards have rebuilt in a new style based more on their preferences and less on Khazar preferences. That's one theory. A slightly more convincing theory to me is that the Rus trading from outside the Khazar holdings pushed into the Khazar territory and took Kiev and its surrounding area for themselves. This seems to be backed up by documentary evidence of an increasingly acrimonious trade dispute between the Rus and the Khazars along the Volga. The Rus trading on the Volga would probably not have come from Kiev, they would have come from the north, outside of Khazar territory, probably from the Novgorod area. The dispute eventually resulted in Viking-style raids down the rivers, at which point the Khazars closed the Volga trade route entirely. Several years later, the Rus seemed to have just completely invaded Khazar territory in a full-scale conquest down the Dnieper, ultimately resulting in the taking of Kiev. This version of events seems more likely given some documentary evidence that we have and what we know about the Khazars and the Rus, and it would actually kind of seem to nicely tie in with the legend of Rurik, even though Rurik himself is probably not historical. Whatever the narrative, by the time the Kievan Rus entered the historical record, it had its capital in Kiev, and embraced a large piece of territory around it that included Novgorod. From here, the Kievan Rus political entity took on an odd inertia. This was largely caused by an odd inheritance system that the Rus used. Rus inheritance was called the Rota system, and seems to represent a strange mixture of Norse primogeniture and the clannishness of the Slavic and steppe peoples, wherever it comes from... In this system, the death of the patriarch of a family saw the land go not to his oldest son, but to the most senior male member of the dead man's clan, usually a brother of the dead man. A similar inheritance system is still practiced in Saudi Arabia, of all places. As a result, noble families would rapidly acquire a large number of well-armed young men who were decades away from ever inheriting anything, if they ever would. These shiftless young warriors were called buyars. As so often throughout history, the military was the dumping ground for these footloose scions of the aristocracy, except that in the clannish feudalism of the Rus polity, it was as likely to be the family army as the royal army that provided opportunity to the young men of the nobility. In the short term, this led to explosive growth. With the Khazars clearly on the back foot, and with the admixture of tribes surrounding them unable to match their welfare numbers, these family armies pushed out in all directions, aided by the monarchy's army when important enough. The Khazars were all but destroyed by 1048, and most of their territory was absorbed by the Rus, or their allies. The Volga Bulgars, it is true, reasserted their independence, but in general the Kievan Rus expanded outward from an area that encompassed the cities of Kiev and Novgorod to controlling a vast area bounded by the Volga in the north, the Urals in the east, and the Carpathians in the west. In the east and south, the line was more poorly defined. The Rus had trouble securing control on the steppes, and so they allied themselves with the Pechings and the Kipchaks, who held much of the core former land area of the Khazars in the Caucasus and around the Caspian. But the Rus held the area around the Dnieper firmly, and continually pushed towards the Byzantine holdings along the Black Sea's northern coast. This was all viewed with a rather large dose of alarm by the Byzantines, as you could imagine. 
Though the Viringian Guard persisted as a key fixture of court life, the opportunism of the Rus traders began to assert itself as their ability in, to project power into the Black Sea became more and more apparent. Many of the early raids on the Khazars, for example, did not restrict themselves to Khazar targets, and soon the Rus were raiding up to the walls of Constantinople itself. Byzantium's reaction to this was its usual diplomatic mix of cloying peace offers, bribes, and attempts to divide and conquer. The Byzantines sent encouragement and technical aid to the Khazars, though not enough to prevent their ultimate collapse, and entered into a loose alliance with the Bulgars of the Balkans, who shared a border with the Rus along the Danube River. At the same time, the Byzantines sent envoys protesting their friendship to the king in Kiev, along with missionaries seeking to convert the Rus to Orthodox Christianity. I'm going to have to double back and talk about the spread of Eastern Orthodoxy in the East in a future episode, as it's much more complex than a simple tool of Byzantine diplomacy. Nonetheless, the attempt was successful in 972, not that it necessarily made the Rus any more friendly as neighbors. Instead, it was the very centripetal force that made the Rus' expansion so rapid that ultimately stalled and destroyed the Kievan Rus. With little or no power vested directly in Kiev, the monarchy had an increasingly difficult time maintaining control. Adding to this issue was the slow economic decline of the riverine trade that had fostered the rise of the Rus in the first place. This started with the political decline of Byzantium, something the Rus had no small hand in, but in which the loss of Anatolia to the forces of Islam was the major event. This in turn undermined the economy of Byzantium and made them a less valuable trading partner for the Rus. But this decline was compounded by a rather fascinating case of unintended consequences, which is going to bring us full circle back to the Baltic. Bear with me. You see, as a result of the losses suffered by Byzantium, the Pope had declared the First Crusade in 1097. Anyone really interested in the Crusades should check out Sharon Eastaw's History of the Crusades, which is an excellent podcast. The calling of the First Crusade pitted the spare manpower of a newly stable and increasingly wealthy Western Europe against a fragmented and disunited Islamic Levant. One of the major effects of this crusade was to open up the direct trade routes between Europe, particularly Italy, and the Levant, bypassing Byzantium, which was already weakened as an economic power to begin with. By opening up this shortcut, the Western powers could gain access to Eastern trade goods like silk and spices without going through Byzantium, and without going through the riverine trade routes of Russia. All of a sudden, the circuitous and difficult river voyages of the Rus, with their plethora of river tolls and middlemen, became completely superfluous. With Constantinople in crisis and Italian merchants outcompeting their trade, the bewildered kings of Kiev saw their coffers suddenly dry out for almost no reason as far as they could tell. And this happened just as they realized the need to centralize their state. With no money to push their reforms, the monarchy in Kiev was unable to centralize. Instead, the noble clans began increasingly bloody internal feuds, showing ever more clearly the impotence of the central government to stop them, until eventually in 1169, one of the warlords just sacked Kiev, destroying forever its primacy in Eastern Europe. But the impact of the Crusades on Eastern Europe does not stop there. Oh no. You see, the First Crusade was quote-unquote successful in that it conquered a strip of territory in Jerusalem, but it wasn't all that good at holding on to it. Again, consult the history of the Crusades for more details on this. 
Ultimately, in 1144, the Pope needed to call a second crusade. This he did with the help of one St. Bernard of Clairvaux. Listeners to the History of Philosophy podcast will remember St. Bernard as the guy who apparently hated all forms of interesting intellectual thought. When Bernard of Clairvaux got to northern Germany in order to preach the crusade, he was confronted by a number of nobles who had some interesting political issues. They were all four going off and killing heathens, but they had some heathens right in their own backyard, namely the pagans of the Valletti Union who, though technically within the bounds of the Holy Roman Empire, continued to practice paganism and continued to resist all their neighbors. In addition, they were conducting massive piratical raids that had nearly shut down trade in the Baltic. These two issues were of course intimately connected, as the resources they gained from piracy were turned to defense. They also brought the monarchy of Denmark into the picture, as the monarchy of Denmark was intimately concerned with trade in the Baltic, and so had a real bone to pick with the Valletti Union. I mean, those unconscionable Valettis, they won't even listen to the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, and they keep messing with everyone's trade, this has everything to do with your crusade, we promise. Between the Holy Roman Emperor, and the Saxon nobility of northern Germany, and the Danish monarchy, the Pope and St. Bernard of Clairvaux were convinced that, you know, so long as they were fighting heathen pagans like the Muslims and the Valletti, uh, you know, they would accrue the same spiritual benefits as those who went all the way to the Middle East. And so it was that by 1147 the so-called Vendish Crusade got going, and as we will see, basically never stopped. Podcast Footnote I must once again thank Travis Dow of the History of Germany and the History of Alchemy and the History of... wait, and the Bohemican podcast, among many others, for helping me out with pronunciation. His time spent in Slavic lands far to the exotic east has helped me out in no, to no end when it came to pronouncing the names in this episode. The Vendish Crusade is spelled with that most pesky of items, the German W, uh, which is pronounced with a V sound. Uh, and so the initial recording of this ep episode is just chock-full of references to the Wendish Crusade. Travis also helped me out with the names of all those Polish tribes, and the names of the Polish monarchs. If I continue to get anything wrong, that's my fault, not his. But thanks again to Travis for the completely invaluable help. Really, really a huge help. Again, if you've got any comments about the pronunciation in any of these episodes, drop by the Facebook page or the website and shoot me an email. Uh, I'm certainly open to correction. Thanks a lot. Uh, end podcast footnote. At some point in the future, I may be doing a special episode on the Northern Crusades. So for now, here's the Cliff Notes version of what happened. Once given the Pope's go-ahead, the monarchy of Denmark took the lead on this crusade. Being more concerned with eliminating paganism, by which you should probably understand eliminating piracy, than converting anyone to Christianity, the methodology of the Danish crusade was to go in and stab and enslave everyone that moved, and leave the land barren and empty. The land was ultimately claimed by the Danish crown, but there was never really any attempt to settle it or conquer it per se. Instead, the reoccupation of this area was left to the knights of the neighboring Saxon territories of the Holy Roman Empire. With the Vens gone, and the piracy dropping off, the economy of the Baltic region improved. 
Everyone was so happy with this result that the Poles decided to not stop the party bus at the Holy Roman Empire border and gave the Crusaders the green light to continue on through Polish territory, as Pomerania was in one of its nearly constant states of revolt from the Polish crown. Once Pomerania was despoiled and depopulated, it was re-inhabited by crusading knights from all over Europe, but being, again, primarily of Saxon extraction. Once Pomerania had been thoroughly crushed, the Crusaders noted that the lands of the Baltic Prussians lay unconquered on the eastern side of the Baltic, annoyingly free of rapine and pillage. With the encouragement of the Pope and the increasingly grudging acceptance of the Polish monarchy, the Crusaders moved on into Prussia. Around the year 1230, the Crusaders decided to make the whole thing formal and invited the Teutonic Knights to come and run things. The Knights, technically a German subset of the Knights Hospitaller, were one of the military religious crusading orders in operation at that time. The Pope gave his blessing to this situation and declared Prussia a crusader state, and with all the land conquered was declared the property of the crusading orders. And that is why Prussia, an area named for a Baltic tribe, has been associated with a bunch of Germans particularly noted for their lack of humor. The Polish king was undoubtedly thrilled but was no longer really in a position to do anything about it. It seems that around the year 1138, the different branches of the Piast dynasty turned on each other and began a massive civil war, completely splintering what was now known as Poland into a number of feuding entities. Also not thrilled were the Baltic tribes of the eastern shore of the Baltic Sea. The Balts reacted to this generalized angst by organizing under the Lithuanians an already powerful tribe that was now bolstered by leading a coalition of all the tribes of the Eastern Baltic. For the Teutonic Knights, this, along with persistent rebellions by desperate Prussians, started to make their march up the Baltic coast feel like work. So they asked the Pope to do something about it. The Pope organized another crusade by offering as much land in Estonia as people could take, the idea being that a new front in Estonia, on the northernmost extreme of the Eastern Baltic, Baltic coast, would divide the forces of the Lithuanians, since the Teutonic Knights were coming up from the south. He seems to have accidentally promised the same land to a several different people, with the result that the King of Denmark, and a group calling themselves the Brotherhood of the Sword, invaded almost simultaneously, and then began squabbling over the land. The Danes ended up gobbling up the northern half of Estonia, while the Brotherhood of the Sword moved down the coast. Ultimately, this too turned into a gigantic bloodbath, as the Danes and the Brothers of the Sword fought the various Estonian tribes. The Lithuanians would send help when they could, but they were now fighting on two fronts, and were gradually squeezed down into a narrower and narrower wedge until they were eventually shoved away from the coast. We can keep going, but let's pause here again, as we have one more area of Eastern Europe to fill in. Let's circle back around to 1169, when Kiev itself was finally sacked, thus completely ending the illusion of uh, Kievan suzerainty over the Kievan Rus. The ultimate winner of this collapse was not Constantinople, which was still in terminal decline following the loss of Anatolia, nor was it really the Rus noble families who were stuck pounding away at each other, nor was it really the steppe tribes or any of the other groups uh, that we've discussed already. Instead, it was the city of Novgorod, which was already by far the oldest and most dynamic of the Rus cities, which became the largest power in the Rus territories. Seeing the collapse of the central authority occurring in this period, the leaders of the city saw and took their chance to strike out on their own. They stopped paying tribute to Kiev, and essentially let it be known that any prince who wanted to defend their city could do so in return for a generous but fixed yearly salary. 
The prince who took up this generous offer would find that it came with very limited political power in the city, but generous financial rewards. The prince was essentially hired to provide a centralized military command, allowing the city to go about the important business of governing itself and making money by selling to the Baltic trade networks. Any conquests made in the city's name were distributed to deserving members of the city's body politic, with bonus pay going to the prince. In this way, Novgorod rapidly secured control of the important trade routes of the north, and would eventually also move into the Rus' heartland by conquering the city of Smolensk. The political organization of Novgorod has often been compared to Venice, and while not exactly the same, to me it seems like an apt comparison. Both cities were essentially oligarchies of a few hundred elite families who divvied up the spoils of trade, rule, and conquest in order to avoid any one family coming to dominate. The hiring of an outside prince with no local ties to act as the head of the military was a part of this system, and served to prevent any one family gaining military glory and power. This can be compared to a few aspects of the Venetian system. In Venice, the doge was the commander-in-chief, and he was a local, but the man chosen was always someone so old that he could be expected to rule the city for only a short time, a kind of early version of term limits. Another key aspect of the Venetian system was the importance of mercenaries as war leaders, whose conquests would be shared out amongst the elites of the city in return for cash pay. In both cases, this system, though it had its flaws, was really rather successful for a pretty long time. Part of the reason for this success was that the common people felt that they had a share in the system. Even if they had no illusions that their votes mattered directly, there was a perception of the elites working towards collective goals. In Venice, this goal was generally some kind of full employment, secured via trade and military conquest. It was probably similar in Novgorod, although it should be said that Novgorod's electoral system was much less labyrinthine than Venice's, and so there was more of a chance that a Novgorodian's vote would count for something than a Venetian's. In any case, the common Novgorodians were also much more active in the colonization of land and the pursuit of trade than their Venetian counterparts. These were the Pomors that we have discussed several times already in the podcast. Their exact class origins are not completely clear, but they were clearly of Rus' descent and originated in territory controlled by Novgorod. It should be said that they were probably not noble, but they may have been small-time traders, or landless peasants, or landed peasants, some mix of people simply out for making a more free life for themselves. Whatever the case, they pursued a lifestyle similar to the trappers and voyageurs of the early Canadian wilderness, pushing up rivers and along frozen coastlines, and exploring forests in search of tradable goods. If they found good places to pursue trade and hunting, they would sometimes settle down into towns and villages, at which point Novgorod would send out representatives to collect taxes and organize security, apparently via some sort of militia system. In this way, the Pomors spread through all the rivers north of the Volga and west of the Urals, and eventually spread far along the northern coast of the Eurasian landmass, even spreading into Siberia. Podcast footnote. It may be that these Pomors represented the truest example of the way the Rus came to be. The lands these Pomors entered, as we saw in the Scandinavia episode, were not empty. Though these Pomors were not part of the local population, they would engage in semi-peaceful relations with them, setting up their trade posts with or without permission, and taking whatever game they wanted, but otherwise paying a fair price for goods and being willing to engage in commerce and cultural contact. Once officials from Novgorod arrived, things would gradually get more structured, farming might be attempted, and the local tribes would be drawn into the new Rus' culture. In this way, the Finnic tribes of the north 
between the Neva River and the Urals gradually lost their individual character and became part of the Novgorod Rus. Wars were definitely fought, but it was a gradual process, and the people would be largely Finnic on a genetic level, but would be Rus on a cultural level. This seems to me like the most likely way that the Varangians established themselves in the vast forests of the north, but it also may be dangerously anachronistic to infer this narrative from this later Novgorodian period. We will never know for sure, but I find this narrative compelling. End podcast footnote. So by the year 1100 or so, Eastern Europe was the picture of disunity. In the Baltic, the barely unified Crusader states fought a punishing genocidal campaign against a coalition of Baltic tribes unified under the Lithuanians. The Polish state was a rump of itself, surrounded by feuding noble houses. The Rus had similarly fallen apart, but their zone of cultural influence had become massive. East of the Neva and north of the Volga, the Republic of Novgorod searched the forests for tradable goods. South of the Volga and north of the Carpathians, and east of the Urals, was a huge patchwork of Rus territory, cut up into a dozen or so aristocratic clan holdings, and all paying lip service to the monarchy that controlled the area around Kiev. Down by the Black Sea there was a corridor of territory that the Rus never quite managed to settle, but which was held by their Peching and Kipchak allies. The shores of the Black Sea were controlled by an odd assortment of Mediterranean powers, mostly Byzantine, but with a fair number of Italians who had begun to take over significant portions of the Byzantine overseas trade network. In many areas, the Rus' armies had taken over a local populace that was ethnically distinct from themselves. Many were Slavs, particularly north of Kiev, but this was hardly universal. Finnic tribes had held vast areas north of Novgorod, for example, as had other indigenous peoples. In the south, the Rus had managed to seize territory in the grasslands, meaning that they presumably now had Cumans, Penchings, Avars, Bulgars, Turks, etc., etc. in their territory, but the Rus had now become very good at assimilating different cultures. Given the short span of time between the establishment of Rus in the 900s and the political splintering we're seeing, we can probably expect that the Rus would have had a mutually intelligible language and culture. At the same time, a portion of the population that was ethnically Rus, whatever that means, may have made up a relatively small portion of the whole population. It may be that, given some time, one of these families would have conquered the rest and consolidated this early Rus cultural entity. Or it might be that the energetic state of Novgorod would have produced another Rurik to unite the land. We will never know what would have happened, because in the year 1222 the first Mongol army invaded Rus territory. This would be followed by many other invasions and raids, and would drive the Rus back onto their heels in a way that they never had been before. As many of you will be aware, it is hard to overemphasize the brutality and suddenness of the Mongol invasions. In areas like the southern steppes, where the nomads were very culturally similar to the Mongols, every victory only swelled the size of the army as the former Khans entered into the same kind of nomadic feudal relationship with the Mongols as they had with the Khazars. Unfortunately, the Mongols had a tendency to conquer areas that weren't full of nomadic tribesmen, people who couldn't get away and couldn't surrender, and so were slaughtered. Once an area was taken over, the Mongols were not the same kind of benevolent rulers from a distance that the Khazars were. They picked up a number of techniques from their Chinese subjects, such as the establishment of the census in order to inform the tax collection, and these census takers and tax collectors followed the Mongol armies, creating recurring rounds of rebellion and repression that served to depopulate the region. And so by 1300, disunited Rus principalities had been dismantled one by one. 
a few Rus principalities further to the west held out simply by avoiding the Mongol raiders. But Kiev was leveled, again, and the small town of Moscow was taken. The Volga Bulgars were finally eliminated as a cultural entity. The Poles were devastated by several major raids. The Lithuanians, occupied in the west, saw their homelands burned behind them. In all, it seemed like the end of the world to those caught up in it, and history tells us that the force assaulting Russia was but a small part of the strength of the Mongols. A few places held. Mighty Novgorod, with its Viking merchant elite and hired prince, deep in the woods and surrounded by marshes, apparently beat off a raid, although details are sketchy and Novgorod did eventually pay tribute to the Khans. In the south, the Byzantines held on to their scrupulously fortified towns, but these were only a thin band along the coast, and many of these were eventually taken. The refugees fleeing these cities back to Constantinople and to Italy may have been the source of the bubonic plague. But it was in the west where the Mongols faced off against a man that they could not conquer. The man was named Bela, and in 1241 they faced him across a river named Seho. Unfortunately, that river lies beyond the scope of our story, as it lies in the Balkan region. Did the Mongols win? Was Europe destroyed? Who was that masked man? These questions and more will have to wait until the next installment of Wittenberg to Westphalia, the Wars of the Reprobation. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com when it comes to your finances you think you've done it all You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.